Good morning, everyone. So today we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it will start on page 530. Proverbs chapter 6. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. With perverted heart, devises evil continually, sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jen. Uh, We've been uh, studying uh, this past month through the book of Proverbs, and we've been focusing our time in the, the first portion of the book. Uh, one, chapters 1 through 9 focus on sayings from a father to a son, wise sayings from a royal father to the royal son. And uh, Proverbs are essentially powerful bits of advice to know how to live best in God's world. And one of the teaching facets, features of Proverbs is to use personas. And this morning, uh, what we have in our text is three different personas of a fool. Uh, Companies commonly use personas to help their organizations visualize who their target customer is, uh, to define the customer more clearly, therefore they can land uh, the sale more deliberately. Take Trader Joe's, for example. Uh, It's been said that the executives at Trader Joe's describe their target customer as upscale budget-conscious people. Uh, Upscale, budget conscience are sort of abstract ideas. So what the managers do is they reinterpret uh, this idea into a persona. So the managers tell the store clerks and the the product designers to decide what goes on Trader Joe's shelves. They describe their target customer as Unemployed professors who drive really, really old Volvos. Why? Well, because unemployed professors are likely really cultured, uh, budget conscious, uh, and well-educated. And so they are the target customer for that Moroccan simmer sauce that no one else knows what to do with. Uh, But this silly little example shows the power of personas. It helps you visualize and in a concrete way understand uh, who a target customer 
is, in, in Trader Joe's case. And in our case this morning, uh, God is trying to use personas to show you what a fool looks like. The three personas of the, our, our text this morning in Proverbs chapter 6 are the pledger, the sluggard, and the wicked. The pledger, the sluggard, or the, and the wicked. Uh, or if you want to remember it this way, you can think of them as the three Ds, the, the debtor, verses 1 through 5, the dozer, in verses 6 through 11, and finally, the deceiver, in verses 12 through 19. So in the next 30 minutes, I'd like for us to consider how to spot a fool by studying these three personas and understanding God's wise descriptions and prescriptions for these types of fools. And my prayer is that uh, you would walk away convinced that Convinced of three things. One, that debts, debts are binding, that slothfulness invites poverty, but worst of all, deception sows calamity. So that, that's our TK takeaway from this morning. The one lesson in three units that God is hoping to impress upon us this morning. Unit one, debts are binding. Unit two, slothfulness invites poverty. And unit three, worst of all, is deception that sows calamity. So let's start with persona number one, the debtor. The debtor's life teaches you that you should avoid liabilities because debt is binding. Look with me at verse one. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you've given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son. Save yourself. For you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the hand of a fowler. Proverbs 6 begins with a father's address to the son, warning him of making hasty agreements. That's the first description. It's a warning of making, don't make hasty investments. And if, in fact, if you've already made those hasty investments, get out quickly. So if you want financial rest in God's world, here's how it works best. Verse 1, don't put security up for your neighbor. Don't give your pledge for a stranger. Now you might be wondering, what exactly does putting up security or giving a pledge mean in verse 1? Well, putting up security or giving your pledge might be what we call today a guarantor. Here's how one investment website defines a guarantor. A guarantor is an individual that agrees to pay a borrower's debt even if the borrower defaults on the obligation. A guarantor is not a primary party in the agreement, but is considered to be additional comfort for the lender. So, Perhaps a common example is rental agreements. A rental agreement might read, a guarantor is the responsible party, oftentimes it's apparent in most instances, that signs a lease and agrees to take on or assume the obligations set forth by the lease. Most notably, you're saying, I'll pay rent if my son or daughter fails to pay rent. So a guarantor of loan agreements is not uncommon today. I've been in an arrangement like this, uh, not a guarantor, but on the borrowing side. Uh, my parents signed a guarantor uh, arrangement uh, when I was signing a lease in, in college. Uh, 
Why? Because a rental company did not want to loan out or entrust a rental property to me, uh, a young man dependent on living by student loans with no income. No, they wanted uh, Mr. Moneybags, my dad, to co-sign the lease. Uh, by having my parents sign it as guarantors, uh, it's giving the, the lender further assurance uh, that the, of the risk of taking me on as, as, a, as a rental agreement. Uh, so since my parents had the income at the time, uh, they signed the lease. That's what a guarantor is. And so Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 5, the first persona, is teaching us to avoid this type of risk. Why is it risky? Uh, because a guarantor assumes the liability on behalf of someone who typically cannot afford to buy what they're signing up for. Now, the situation in Proverbs 6 is far more risky than my college rent example with my parents because, see, the warning here is against taking a guarantor for your neighbor, the text says, or your stranger, which, in other words, is for someone who's sort of outside of your ordinary household. Why is that riskier? Well, because you don't know what their spending habits are or their ability or their follow-through are. Uh, You likely don't know them as well as you might know your child who you might sign a a, a lease to to be the guarantor. Uh, Which, if you don't live with them, uh, it's risky because since they're not part of your household, you might have a repo man coming to pick up your pickup truck unexpectedly to collect your car, to collect the debt because your friend has defaulted on the loan. And you didn't know. They didn't tell you. They moved to Spain. (laughs) This is the risk of a guarantor. So the the point is this. In God's world, it is wise to avoid risky liabilities because debts are binding. What you say, your words matter. Now you might be thinking, I can see how persona one is unwise. It's kind of straightforward and and plain. But I'm not sure how this applies to my life today. Well, persona number one, the debtor, warns you and warns me of making hasty agreements that leave us trapped. Notice how the father describes the guarantor as one who is, quote, snared or caught by the words, their words in verse two. In other words, Agreements bind us. They, they tie us up. They, they trap us until the agreement is dissolved. So the advice the father has given to the son here is save yourself. Do this, son. Save yourself. Verse 3. How? Verse 4, he says, go, hasten, plead, ur- plead urgently with your loan officer. He says, don't even sleep. You feel the sense of urgency, the wise sense of urgency from the father. Again, he says in verse 6, save yourself. He repeats it twice. Like a gazelle, he says, sprint out of there. Like a bird, fly out of that agreement. Now, you might not currently be a guarantor in a contract at the moment, but here's why this wisdom matters to you this morning. Friends, there is a foolish foolish investor inside of you that you need saving from. You know what it's like to make hasty investments. You've done this before. None of us performs perfectly. If you think about it, what is sin? In investment terms, sin is a poor investment on things that leave you lifeless. You've done this. There's a foolish investor inside of each of you. In Scripture, sin is, and Satan are described as a snare, as a trap, 
as a hunter. Similar language to our text this morning. And Paul teaches that all have sinned, and therefore, all of us have been trapped once before. But the good news is, is that God is a perfect investor. And the price to purchase you cost him his life. Church, listen to this good news. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, but as, like, as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, 1 Peter 1. Therefore, if you believe in Jesus as the Savior and the Lord of your life, then Jesus is your guarantor, who has assumed the liability of your debt that you could not pay at the expense of his own life. Friends, Jesus co-signed the loan of your foolish past, your foolish present, your foolish, foolish future, poor investments, and he paid the terms of agreement, death, for you. He has canceled the loan as your guarantor on your behalf. Trinity, if you know Jesus, he has died like a fool. Not because he was one, but because you were one, and he wanted to pay off your foolish debts. So what does Persona 1 show us? It teaches us that the debtor should avoid liabilities because debts are binding. So if you've made hasty agreements, God's wisdom to you today says, get out of it, beg, plead the lender to let you free from the agreement. But thanks be to God who, for those of you who by faith have attached Jesus and know him as your guarantor, be assured that he has assumed the liability of your greatest debt at the expense of his own life. So in each of these personas, we see a snapshot of a fool, but also a portrait of Christ. This is persona number one. Persona number two, the dozer. The dozer's life teaches us that you should work diligently because slothfulness invites poverty. Verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come to you like a robber, like an armed man, like, and want like an armed man. So what warning does the father describe next? He's describing the peril of slothfulness, dozing. Here the father is teaching the son that only, it only takes a little bit of inactivity, and poverty can hit you like an unexpected pickpocket. I uh, once was on a lovely, amazing lunch date with my now wife. We were in Barcelona, Spain. Spain is the theme of our morning. After enjoying a lovely musical performance next to a picturesque marina, we wanted to grab a, a bite to eat. So we looked around for a local restaurant and found a lovely tapas place with a beautiful patio overlooking sailboats that were moored along the pier, bouncing in the crystal waters of the Mediterranean. It was lovely. It was actually our first date. It was a unique situation, so don't try to be like the Mitchells. But here we were, enjoying this beautiful view. I was enjoying a beautiful girl eating tasty tapas, lost in the romance of it all. And it was so lovely until we had to leave. 
the dreamy day quickly disappeared. You see, what happened was, sometime in the romance of it all, uh, in the course of paying the bill and using the restroom before leaving, uh, someone stole Steph's purse right out from under our table. We were utterly gutted. What a way to ruin and spoil a date. Steph lost her iPad, lots of euros, the equivalent of, I don't know, about $500 U.S., a camera, credit card, all gone, never to be found again. We were robbed. So what's the, what's the moral of this pickpocketing story in Barcelona? The moral is a little axe invites much want. Or in Proverbs 6 terms, slothfulness invites poverty. So what's the prescription? What's the, what's the remedy? Well, the wise man says, the remedy to not get stuck and robbed like this is to look at the ants. Verse 1. Look with me at the ants. Ants do two things extremely well. First, they take initiative and they work diligently. First, ants take initiative in verse 7. Without having a chief, the wise man says, or an officer, or a ruler. In other words, ants don't wait for someone else to give them instructions or motivations to get at it. They work without instructions. They take their own initiative. Not only do they take initiative, but they also initiate to work diligently. Verse 8, ants work diligently. Look, the ant, the, the, the wise man says, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The term summer and harvest are simply names for different seasons on the calendar. In ancient Israel, summer would be roughly June through September, and harvest was approximately uh, earlier, April through June. So God's perception of the donor is that the dozer is that the dozer needs to take initiative to diligently work in season and out of season. One commentator, Bruce Walkey, summarizes persona number two's lesson like this. He says, the created order itself will not be defied. The sluggard challenges this order, this order which yields harvests in return for honest work, but takes away produce for the, from those who defy it. So friends, it's important to note who is in the scope of this proverb. This is addressing sluggards. This is not people who are unable to work, but people who are able to work yet choose not to apply themselves. This is not a warning to the sufferer who is unable to work or get out of bed for one reason or another. No, this is God addressing a sluggard who is able to work. If God says to the sluggard, work diligently because, so, so what God is saying is work, says to the sluggard, work diligently because slug, slothfulness invites poverty. But what does the world say? The world says, ah, work to live. Don't live to work. In other words, the subtext of that is, ah, work is bad. The real goal of life is vacations to Barcelona. Or the real goal in life is uh, working as minimally as possible and getting out uh, of work as quickly to get to the good things, you know, like rest and vacations. Uh, and because the world has that drumbeat, you're prone to slothfulness yourself. But the Bible tells an entirely different story. 
about work. It goes something like this. God created work to be good. Genesis 2. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Before sin entered the world, God created work to be good. As I've heard one Old Testament scholar say it, we work because we serve a hard-working God who worked six days and made us to work like him. But the story doesn't end there. The, the consequence of sin is that work became hard and toilsome. Genesis 6, God told Eve, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, don't eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You'll eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. You'll eat the bread by the sweat of your brow until the, you return to the ground. In other words, work's going to be hard because of your disobedience. So work is still part of God's good creation. But after man's disobedience, work became painful and toilsome. What God created as a blessing now has become a curse because of man's foolishness. Friends, there's a sloth inside of each of us. A sloth who wants the fruit without the labor. But thankfully, God is a God who neither sleeps nor slumbers. He's always ready to be at work. God the Father sent his son to get to work on reversing this curse. Consider how one pastor describes the work ethic of our Savior, Jesus. He says, God left his seat to come labor perfectly in your place. He labored properly as a carpenter in your place. He wasn't overworking or finding his identity in carpentry, but his perfectly punched time card now bears your name. Moreover, he goes on to say, Jesus has also rested perfectly. In this world-changing mission that he was on, he still found time to rest and retreat in fellowship and prayer. And now Jesus has ascended into heaven, eternal rest, where so you too will one day rest with him because you are united by faith with him. Trinity, this is good news to the dozer. So in summary, what's the description and prescription of persona number two, the donor? Well, it's a warning that your slothfulness invites poverty. So you ought to work diligently. When you doze on your duties, remember that Jesus did not slack in season, but took the initiative to work perfectly on your behalf so that by his work you would have eternal rest in Christ forever. So, two personas down. We've studied the first two personas. The first persona, the debtor, teaches us that debts are binding. The second warns us that slothfulness invites poverty. But the third, you might remember me saying in the beginning, is, is the worst of all. Worst of all is the third persona, deception, which sows calamity. Persona number three, the deceiver. The deceiver teaches us that deception brings calamity. Verse 12, notice how the deceiver is described. A worthless person, a wicked man, Goes about with crooked speech. He winks his eye. He signals his feet. He points his finger. 
With a perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Now, if that's the description of a deceiver, well, then what's the wise prescription? What's the anecdote? Well, if you look at the text, you will find no commands in this section. There is no anecdote to the, to the deceiver. This is why I said it's the worst of all three of the personas. It's the only persona where there's not actually a charge or a command given to the fool. There's no prescriptive commands in all verses 12 through 19, like there were in 1 through 11. For example, uh, verses 1 through 5, the debtor's told to beg and get out of Dodge, cancel the agreement. In verses 6 through 11, the dozer is told to get up, work diligently. But how do you counsel a deceiver? There is no command. Why? Because deceit is this deadly. It's this perilous. You can think of it this way. The wise man describes deceit like a full-body sport. Look at all the body language in verses 12 through 19. The deceiver's mouth speaks deviously, verse 12, 17, 19. The deceiver's eyes wink condescendingly, verses 13 and 17. The deceiver's hands work murderously, verses 13 and 17. The deceiver's feet move mischievously, 13 and 18. The deceiver's heart plans perversely, 14 and 18. Deceit is a full-body sport. It is all-consuming. You can't help yourself out of it. You need divine intervention. And God detests the deceiver, verse 16. There's no prescription here. Moreover, the, the climactic folly that God detests, most of all, is highlighted at the end of our text, verse 19, where we read, God detests a false witness who breathes out lies, and, and one who sows discord among brothers. In other words, God detests liars in his church. Trinity, be warned. God detests deceivers. A deceiver is someone who loves to scheme and to stir up strife who loves to sow speculation among members. A deceiver is someone who says what people want to hear, not what they need to hear. A deceiver is someone who strings lies like a pearl necklace. It looks good, but that's always what they're working on. A deceiver is a, is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Like, like Jacob, the deceiver, who took advantage of his brother's hunger to woo him into a hasty investment, and then ultimately deceiving his father in order to receive the older brother's blessing. Or like Judas, the great New Testament deceiver, who acted like Jesus' ally, but his mouth and his eyes and his hands and his heart and his feet plotted to kill Jesus. And of course, persona number three most ultimately summarizes Satan, the ultimate deceiver. Trinity, God detests deception, because it is completely antithetical to who he is, 100% opposite of who he is and what he stands for. Therefore, deception has no place in God's church. 
So if deception sows calamity, then Christian, you're called to speak truthfully. This is sort of the implied prescription of the text. How do you, how do you, how do you speak truthfully? truthfully? Well, you, you speak the truth in love, as Paul instructed us, as Jesus modeled to us. Jesus came full of grace and full of truth, John 1. So you are to speak to one another likewise, full of grace and full of truth. So the question is, are your words true and gracious? Some of you are prone to speak graciously, but not truthfully. This is someone who is prone to say what people want to hear, but they minimize and avoid the hard conversations. Deceivers are avoiders and minimizers. I am wholeheartedly prone to this. Some of you are more prone to speak truthfully, but not graciously. This is someone whose words may be true, but the tone and the, time, the timing of what they say is unnecessarily sharp or harsh or cutting or embarrassing. Deceivers use sharp, are sharp with their words rather than building up. They tear down. So what could a full of grace, full of truth speech look like here at Trinity? Well, here's one suggestion. Full of truth, full of grace speech could look like being honest about your struggles. Be honest about your struggles. Minimization is a form of deception, and Christian communities are vulnerable to acting better than they actually are. I am completely guilty of this. But have you ever experienced the freeing power of someone being honest about their struggles? Have you ever felt the, the freedom and the disarm of that? Maybe you've experienced this when someone you think has it all together, like they are perfect, they, it's impossible for them to fail, a role model of yours, then comes to you one day asking for prayer because they are admitting they struggle with anger. And then you, you reply, wait, wait, you struggle with anger? I thought I was the only one. Someone being honest about their struggles is utterly free. Have you tasted that? Or when they share their struggles with temptation and you think, what, 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 that guy? He gets tempted when he goes on work trips? I thought I was the only one who struggles on work trips. Or when, when someone says they're struggling in prayer and studying scriptures and you say, wait, 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 I thought you do it daily, five times a, a week without fail for an hour every time. Do you struggle with Bible reading and prayer too? I thought I was the only one that struggles. Or when they share struggles of unwanted thoughts that are bombarding them, and you say, wait, 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 I thought I was the only one being kept up at night with unwanted thoughts that are tormenting my mind. I'm not alone? Here's my point. A community that is honest about their struggles they face is a force to be reckoned with in a world that says, fake it till you make it. So be honest about your struggles. Minimizing is a form of deception, but honestly, honesty sets people free. So be honest about your struggles. The great deceiver knows how powerful a, a, a community can be of people who share their struggles. 
when they're tempted to act and minimize those struggles to be a perfect Christian. With God's help, you can grow in speaking truth in love. You'll, you'll sometimes mess up. You'll minimize. You'll act like you, you're a know-it-all and that you have it all together. I do this. But there is one who perfectly sets others free by speaking honestly about their struggles most. And that's, of course, our Savior Jesus. Deception is ultimately what cost Jesus his life. He was backstabbed by Judas, mistrialed by Rome, denied by his close friend Peter, falsely accused by the religious leaders. But how does Jesus respond? At the pinnacle of deception in history, Jesus was honest about your struggles, yet he was full of grace and full of truth. When he said to the Father on the cross, Luke 23, Father, forgive them. Truth. We need forgiveness. Grace, for they do not know what they are doing. This is divine intervention to deceivers like you and I. Jesus says deceivers, sets deceivers free from their calamity. So, what does persona number three teach us? It teaches us that deceiver's life is one that sows calamity without remedy, apart from God. And thanks be to God. Jesus has set deceivers free by speaking honestly about your, tr- your troubles to the Father on the cross. Only truth, only truth himself can overpower such a full-body sport of deception. So to recap, at the beginning of our time, I mentioned that one of the teaching features of Proverbs is to use personas. And what God has done here is given us three personas of what a fool looks like. The debtor, the dozer, and the deceiver. But yet, all the while, he's given us portraits of who Christ is, the wise one enfleshed, who is our very help. The debtor teaches you that it warns you against hasty investments because they're risky. The dozer teaches that laziness invites robbery. The deceiver teaches you that worst of all is a lying life for which there is no hope apart from, hope apart from divine intervention. The intervention for our risky debts is never get in, in the, them in the first place. So if you are in them, get out. The intervention from slothfulness is simple. Wake up. Take initiative like the ant. Work diligently. Know that life takes preparation. There's no guarantees for tomorrow. However, when it comes to deceit, the problem is too deep. There is no self-help remedy here. Deceit requires divine intervention. These three personas remind us of our beautiful Savior, Jesus. So the good news of Proverbs 6 this morning is that debtors, dozers, and deceivers have been made wise because Jesus became a fool. He died like a fool, not because he was one, but because he paid off the debt of your foolish investments through his diligent work in his life and his death, dying at the hands of deceivers, so that ultimately you might become wise. So let's be a church that is honest about our struggles 